Hello, and welcome to another episode of Anne's Archism. I'm your host, Annie Buell, and on this show, um, I talk a lot about religion, politics, spirituality, and some other topics that I have yet to make an episode on, like supernatural occurrences and astrology. But today I'm going to continue with the religious and political theme because people seem to like when I talk about that kind of stuff. And not just in giving my opinion or perspective on religion and politics in America, but actually giving a history and providing context so that we can understand how religion, primarily Christianity, primarily conservative evangelical Christianity has become so intertwined with our government and politics, mainly the Republican Party and other far-right conservative groups. Um, but before before we start, I just wanted to give a brief explanation for my absence. So um, as some of you who listen to my podcast or follow me on TikTok know, I did have a job um, in the beginning of October. I was an office manager for a dental dentist office, and I was super excited about it. Um, but because I was working a full-time job, I decided to step away from my podcast and TikToking and making videos and all that kind of content um, because I was already working 40 hours a week. So that happened. And then two weeks into the new position, my employer decided to let me go because they wanted someone with more experience in the dental field, even though they told me they would train me on that experience that I needed. But it's fine. Um, I think it was the universe's way of um, kind of pulling me, pulling me back to the podcast and to writing and to doing what I do here on social media and online. So um, kind of a silver lining. But yeah, that explains my absence and break in podcasting and posting these episodes. So I do apologize for that. But I'm very happy to be back. Um, so let's just get into the episode. Um, so I think I mentioned this almost every time I do an episode, but I grew up going to a Pentecostal evangelical church and living in a home where my parents' beliefs were rooted in evangelical Christianity as well. And I'm pretty grateful that in my adolescence and teenage years that I was never that Christian who was constantly in your face and talking about Christianity all the time when I was at school. And if you are listening to this and you knew me in high school and your response is to say, uh, actually, Annie, you were, then I believe you and I apologize for whatever hostility or closed-mindedness I displayed. But there's one memory that unfortunately sticks out that I want to share. Um, I remember this taking place like all where all political and religious back and forth of the time take place on Facebook. Um, I actually tried to go back and see if I could find the post I made in the comments in response to what I had said. I thought it was somewhere between um, in between 2009 and 2010 because I remember I got into a back and forth with my high school boyfriend's best friend about this. But I skimmed through all my posts and I couldn't find it, which tells me that at some point, probably recently, I went back and deleted the post because I was probably ashamed and embarrassed that I ever even posted what I said on a public forum. So I'll have to go from memory, but it was around the time that Prop 8 was on the ballot for the 2008 California elections. And if you don't know what Proposition 8 was about, it was a proposition and constitutional amendment that was passed in 2008. It was created by opponents of same-sex marriage, and surprisingly, but also not surprisingly, it was actually passed in the 2008 elections, which meant that the state would only recognize marriages between a man and a woman. Thankfully, the proposition was found unconstitutional on different grounds in 2010, but the decision to reverse it didn't go into effect until 2013. So, being in a conservative evangelical household, as well as growing up in an evangelical church, a lot of the people in my church and my family members at home were in favor of Prop 8. 
the people I remember being the most against it um, in my personal life were other classmates that I had in my high school choir class. Um, So I remember one morning before class started, one of the other choir members was sharing how her and a friend went around that morning and were removing yes on Prop 8 signs from people's yards in the community. And I remember wanting to laugh because I actually thought that was really funny, but being conflicted about it because what I had been conditioned to believe was that marriage was only between a man and a woman. And by taking those signs from people's yards, they were showing intolerance for a difference of opinion. Of course, now I know that claiming to be against same-sex marriage is most likely founded in a religious belief and not in any logical train of thought. So sometime around this part of my life, I had a few discussions with my mom and sister about Prop 8. um, And I'm I'm so ashamed to even say this. I'm ashamed of what I even, that I even said this or had this way of thinking, but I gave this ass backwards argument of, well, if two men or two women can marry, then what would stop someone from wanting to marry their dog or another pet? It was very illogical in a very irrational way of thinking. And I, I just hate, I hate how it tastes when it leaves my mouth when I say it, but I had posted something in regards to Prop 8 and how America was no longer remaining a Christian nation and how threatening this overturn of marriage was to us as a society and a cult in our culture. And my boyfriend's best friend, who was very much pro LGBTQ plus and a strong ally of the community, jumped in my comments and was breaking down my argument. And I honestly, I don't, I don't remember what was said. And I wish I had taken a screenshot of the conversation before I completely deleted it from my Facebook. But I, I dug my heels in and doubled down on what I said, um, as is the usual theme of conservative Christians and has been proven in studies done looking at the beliefs of conservatives in general. I remember reading the comments out loud in my kitchen to my parents and my dad was like feeding me some things to say back in response that now when I think about it really had nothing to do with the conversation and what my boyfriend's friend was saying. And when I look back on that memory and time of my life with so much cringe in my heart and on my face, um, I understand now that what I, what I was saying was extremely exclusive, as extremely exclusive and bigoted as it was, was only said because I thought that was what I as a Christian was supposed to say. It didn't really matter if I believed it or not. I didn't even know if I felt one way or, or the other about gay marriage or two men or two women getting married. But what I did know was that as a Christian and a conservative one at that, I felt responsible, obligated to defend it. I had to be obedient to do it, regardless of what I felt was wrong or right. To defend such a bigoted and hateful and exclusionary view of marriage, and that was the moment that I realized that the religion I was brought up in was a religion that insists on a denial of knowing your identity or even trying to figure out your identity outside of that religion. Because anything that falls outside of that religion, the beliefs, the doctrines, the theology, the biblical-based stances, is not only different, but it's ungodly. It's of this world. It is not from God or anything like that. And there's just no tolerance for that in evangelical Christianity, no matter how nice people may seem. So I wanted to talk today about evangelical Christianity and truly how harmful it is as an institution. Like a lot of other religions and denominations, um, this certain denomination of Christianity relies a lot on faith, which, as we know, is completely devoid of logic and rational or critical thinking. It's a lot to discuss if you're completely unaware or unknowledgeable about religion or Christianity, and I'm obviously not going to be able to touch on every single facet of evangelical Christianity, 
but hopefully this can be a good starting point if you are interested in learning more about it from an objective point of view. So let's, let's, let's begin. Um, so evangelical Christianity, it's a movement, it's a movement that branches off from Protestant Christianity. It is a very charismatic and rigid denomination that has four distinct aspects that define this brand of Christianity, according to David, uh, historian David Bebbington. Those four aspects are conversionism, biblicism, crucicentrism, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, crucicentrism, and activism, which according to Bebbington, quote, form a quadrilateral of priorities that is the basis of evangelicalism, end quote. In layman's terms, the four aspects of evangelicalism rely not only on converting others, but personal conversion experiences are highly revered. And this is something that I remember hearing a lot of growing up in the church. It, it was not uncommon, at least every time I went to church or youth group or some other Christian event, there was always a certain day, if I was at a church camp or retreat, or a certain time in the sermon where someone would come up and share their testimony, which is just another word for how they converted to Christianity or the pastor would share a story of someone they knew that had a really difficult tough life and and God saved them and to me it always read as somewhat of a condescending method of guilt or shame to shame us current students and congregation members you know like the underlying message I felt like they were trying to send was see how horrible this person's life was they had it so bad even worse than you and they've still completely devoted their life to God And as someone who was born into an evangelical family and was dedicated to God at a very young age, the shame and the guilt worked. After hearing emotional and hard stories of people who had been, you know, addicted to drugs or alcohol or been abused or never really had a steady family or support group in their life, I felt like even though I'd already, quote unquote, dedicated my life to Jesus, my faith and devotion wasn't as noteworthy or as powerful because I didn't have this awesome conversion story. So that's the first tenet. The second one is biblicism. And biblicism is another phrase for biblical literalism, which sounds just like what it is. Uh, In evangelical Christianity, the foundation of your faith is all based in the Bible and scripture. Not only that, but evangelicals are taught to believe that the Bible is the absolute inerrant word of God and that everything written down in the Bible is accurate and actually happened in history and the writers of these texts were simply relaying a message given to them from God from the divine. Uh, The phrase man written but divinely inspired is a very popular phrase evangelicals like to use to justify their faith in the Bible. To even call into question the validity and historical accuracy of the Bible is seen as questioning God himself in evangelicalism. That's one thing I learned from a very young age. You don't question the Bible because to question the Bible is to question God. So this belief in biblical inerrancy and infallibility for many evangelicals ensures to them that miracles are real and they do happen. And it also supports their view of creationism, something that many evangelicals still believe today. Although sometime around the end of the 20th century, creationism was abandoned for the more popular belief in intelligent design. And I remember when I was a college uh, freshman in college and could already feel my religious beliefs and my faith start to change a little bit, I was in a freshman psychology class and once a week, all the psychology classes would meet at a certain time in our, like, the performance hall um, and we would have psychology convocation. And one week we watched a video about the Bible. Don't know how it related to psychology at all. 
But at the end of the lecture, I was sitting next to one of my friends and he turned to me in full confidence and was like, can you believe there are some people out there that don't believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God? And I didn't say anything because I I actually could believe it, even if I didn't know that I would be someone who would actually who would eventually become one of those people. So the third aspect of evangelicalism, crucicentrism, is just another religiously loaded way to say that a huge focus within this denomination of Christianity is the focus on the atonement of sin through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That means that as an evangelical Christian, you are saved from damnation to hell by believing that Jesus Christ was crucified for every single human being that has, is, and will ever exist, and that he was not crucified for the crime of treason and and executed by the Roman occupied state, and by accepting that you are granted, by accepting that, you're granted grace and salvation. This is a huge counterpoint that I see whenever I discuss the history of Christianity. A lot of people who are Christians like to claim how different it is from other religions because no other religion has a deity who sacrificed himself for his followers. And to that I say, the idea of atonement in crucicentrism is something that wouldn't be discussed and accepted until centuries after the death of Jesus. Why did Jesus die? Because he was a political threat to the Romans and he wasn't the first prophet that they had put to death. So this idea that Jesus died for the souls and sins of others while completely ignoring how much of a threat he was to the religious and political leaders of that time period is, in my opinion, kind of fluffing up Christianity a little bit. It's like making a little a little more palatable, a little more PG for evangelicals. It's a lot easier to follow a religion where a deity so willingly suffered and gave his life so that future followers would be saved from damnation after they die than to accept that he was a political target in the crosshairs of leaders who did not like his message of love and caring for others and the marginalized. And finally, the fourth aspect of evangelicalism is activism. This means evangelicals are constantly and aggressively encouraged to share their beliefs and doctrines with other non-Christians, whether that's through preaching wherever they can or through social action, like going on missions trips, which, let's be honest, are just modern day methods of colonization. This was the aspect that I always hated, hated about Christianity. It's like within the church, especially amongst the more um, zealous and active teens in my youth group, there was this subtle competition to see who could bring the most people to youth group, who could bring the most amount of potential converts to church. And if you if you weren't sharing your faith in some cases, it wasn't uncommon that some leaders might really question why you weren't sharing your faith. It just felt, it felt so awkward to me to be in class in the middle of learning about the periodic table of elements and try to work Christianity in the conversation. Like, all right, so the atomic weight of lithium, this 6.941, got it. But you know what's really heavy? Sin. It was, it was a lot to put on a teenager, much less a teenager who really didn't comprehend Christianity and what it meant to call yourself a member of the religion. So... There are scarily um, a lot of evangelicals in the world, according to Wikipedia, 619 million evangelicals in the world as of 2016, which is about one in every four Christians that would be classified as an evangelical. And as you can guess, the largest concentration of them are right here in the U.S. So I think something as expansive and influential as evangelical Christianity deserves to be looked into. How did this monstrosity of a religion become such a powerhouse faith to the point where the current president has his own 
Evangelical Advisory Board. So much for the separation of church and state, right? So let's get into this history of the domination. The word evangelical derives from the Greek word oiangelion. I know I butchered that. I am so sorry. Um, which is actually two words, eu, oi, I, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. It's eu, meaning good, and angelos, angelos, which means angel or messenger. By the early Middle Ages, the definition would expand to include not only the message, but include the Gospels, which included the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. During the Reformation, the semantics would change further to where the word would mean the gospel truth, and Martin Luther referred to the evangelical church as a way to distinguish the newly broken off Protestant church from the Catholic church. Later down the line, during the 18th and early 19th centuries in England and North America, the word was applied to the series of religion revival movements taking place. Um, David Bebington also noted that there was a difference between evangelical with a capital E and evangelical with a lowercase e. He noted that the lowercase use of the word referred to the gospel truth or message from the or message, while the uppercase word use of the word was applied to any aspect of these revivalist moments, which started as early as the 1730s. So as an ism, it emerged in the 1700s in England and the North American colonies, but it drew from earlier developments going on in the Protestant world that would ultimately influence the evangelical revivals. In the Encyclopedia of Evangelicalism, a religious scholar, Randall Balmer, noted that evangelicalism drew from multiple forms and derivatives of Christianity, including European pietism, Scottish-Irish Presbyterianism, and New England Puritanism. So evangelicalism plucked out different characteristics from each of these, including the warm-hearted spirituality of pietism, which, by the way, is a separate movement in Lutheranism that emphasizes biblical doctrine with the focus of living a pious and spiritual life. Um, they picked the precise adherence of doctrine from Presbyterianism and intense individual introspection that came from Puritanism. So, because evangelicalism drew from all three of these mo movements, I think it's important to examine them. Um, so pietism emerged in Europe during the 17th century among German Lutherans. It was a movement that emphasized the revival of devotion to the Lutheran church and living a pious or otherwise morally sound life. Um, they held clergy and lay people to an extremely high and rigid moral standard in protest against an overly formal and cold Christianity. Uh, for Presbyterianism, evangelicals took the Scottish and Northern Irish traditions of communion, which were preceded by multiple Sundays of preaching, singing, and praying. And finally, from Puritanism, evangelicals adopted the doctrine of conversionism as a prerequisite for church membership, meaning that you had to confess you had converted to Christianity in order to not only be considered a member of the church, but to engage in communion. So this ism very much took root in New England colonies and also held a strict emphasis on the importance of studying scripture, particularly among the lay people. So once evangelicalism had plucked and picked certain aspects of other religious movements, it really started to take place and grow both in England and North America during the 1730s. And further, before I move further, I want to point out how fitting it is that this particular movement of Christianity was literally created by selecting certain aspects of other movements. A lot of Christians today have this tendency to cherry pick certain verses and stories of the Bible 
to fit their own moral agenda, claiming that just because the Bible says one thing, it automatically fits their 21st century idea of morality. So it makes sense that that group of Christians whose denomination arose from the gathering of other aspects of multiple denominations would then pick and choose which verses of the Bible are the most important and which ones aren't so important. A perfect example of this is when Christians use the Levitical laws to justify their dislike of homosexuality. They will always quote Leviticus 18.11 and 18.22 as their justification for the immorality of homosexuality, but they incredibly forget to look at historical contents, the authors of the books, the group of people for which those laws were written, and the biggest one of all, they completely leave out the other laws that say, you know, you shall not consume shellfish, you shall not plant two different seeds next to each other, you shall not wear clothing of mixed linens, and on and on. And I find it hilarious that whenever I point out the fact that they're cherry picking those verses, they somehow, through their amazing and completely deluded mental gymnastics, also say something along the lines of, well, those are the Old Testament laws and Christ came to fulfill those laws, so we need to adhere to them or take them into consideration. But you still use them to justify your hatred and dislike of gay, lesbian, and transgender people. So which is it? Just pick one. It doesn't make any sense how they try to rationalize. Ugh, anyway, so going back to when evangelicalism first started getting traction in the 1730s, the first revival or movement, I guess, that we see of evangelicalism in America started with the First Great Awakening. It began in the congregational churches of uh, in New England that came about as a result of Puritanism. The most influential leader and theologian of this time was a man named Jonathan Edwards, and his preaching, whose preaching of justification by faith inspired many other preachers and ministers to continue the religious revival in churches throughout the colonies. One very popular priest that helped uh, with the spread of evangelicalism was a man named George Whitfield who was known for his dramatic style of preaching and his ability to simplify biblical doctrine. So this made his pop him popular among thousands of colonists and lay people who would often flock to these open-air sermons um, that took place all up and down the Atlantic coast. So it would only take 10 years for this movement to hit its peak in 1740, and the overall theme that made this religion so popular was the fact that it heavily stressed the importance of a personal conversion experience that was entirely subjective to the individual. Because of this, evangelicalism was originally viewed in a negative way by anti-revivalists who believed the egalitarianism of this movement was undermining the social order of the time. The downside of this was because lay people were encouraged to express their dissent with their pastors and other members of the clergy, often many times, uh, times many of these people would break off and just start their new church, our new church, which I think right there highlights the dangers of religion in and of itself. If you don't like one person's theology or interpretation of scripture, you can just go off and start your own church and by extension, your own denomination and even an entirely new religion, like with the Church of Scientology and Mormonism. Speaking of splitting off and breaking away, um, the First Great Awakening did end up splitting the Congregational and Presbyterian churches in regards to overall support for the Evangelical Revival. Clearly, the newer Evangelical faction became the dominant faction among the two churches, and the main theological outlook among Congregational churches was based off the work of Jonathan Edwards. Throughout the decades in the 18th century, many more churches broke away from already established churches in New England, and they moved to the South, where Presbyterian and Baptist churches began to challenge the previous Anglican churches, which identified with Southern plantation elites. 
And by 1776, evangelicals far outnumbered Anglicans in the South. Uh, so great was the impact of evangelicalism in the South that in a span of 20 years from 1770 to 1790, the number of Methodist and Baptist church would grow from 150 Baptist churches and 20 Methodist churches to 858 Baptist and 712 Methodist churches, which is just absolutely wild to me. But if you've ever been to the South or you live in the South or you grew up and grew up there, or even in the Midwestern part of the country, you know it's not uncommon at all for there to be a church on almost every street corner and probably every half mile there's a church somewhere. It's funny because um, in 2018, my sister got married out in Illinois and while I was there, I drove to Michigan to meet up with a friend that I had met through Twitter. And as we were driving through this rural area, I commented on how many churches there are out in this part of the country. And his response was, you know, like, aren't there any churches out in California? And I was like, well, yeah, but not this many. And you definitely don't see them this frequently. And he like, he sarcastically responded with, oh, that explains why y'all are demons out there. Um, I just thought that was a funny little story, but it also highlights the impact that evangelical revivalism had on this country and religion in America in general. So... The 19th century saw another movement, appropriately named the Second Great Awakening, which technically started in the 1790s, but it lasted for half a century until through the 1840s. Uh, because of this, evangelicalism spread even further, influencing all the major Protestant denominations, so much so that many Protestants would eventually convert to evangelicalism. This meant that some of the most influential leaders in America during this time were, in fact, evangelical Christians. And there were three major parts of the country that these revival congregationalists or revival movements and camps took place. Um, the first was in New England, and that was led by the congregationalists in the 1820s. The second was in western New York, led mainly by congregationalists and Presbyterians. And the area was dubbed the Burned Over District in reference to the level of spiritual fervor that took place. So much so that it was metaphorically said to be on fire. Um, and the third part was more west in the Cumberland River Valley in Tennessee and Kentucky, and it was in this region where evangelicalism would get its infamous, dramatic, and emotional depiction. Some worshipers were described as barking like dogs, um, experiencing convulsions, fell into trances, they were dancing, shouting, laughing, and even some experiences such as religious ecstasy, some would experience religious ecstasy and they would just fall to the floor and what would be characterized as being slain in the spirit. What made evangelicalism so popular and dynamic from its predecessors and the other movements that it drew from was the stark belief in the doctrine of assurance. So Puritans believed that the assurance of faith arrived much later in one's life, or sometimes never at all, and was the result of struggle and the experience of those who believed. The stressed importance of a personal and immediate con conversion experience gave evangelicals a simple acceptance of assurance, and that was what made it so popular among converts. There was an emphasis on personal salvation and piety rather than ritual and tradition, which gave listeners a feeling of an intensely personal connection and would add a deep sense of conviction. The Second Great Awakening would see the rise and influence of both the Methodist and Baptist churches, with the former Methodist Episcopal Church being the most influential. There was also an increase in missionary work during this time, and the Methodist Church began providing resources in their attempt to evangelize and proselytize to the expanding Western frontier. 
there were some differences in theology between the first and second great awakenings. Um, the first great awakening had primarily a Calvinist theology, which included the doctrine of predestination. And that's the idea that God only grants salvation to a small number of pre-selected people and everyone else, the rest are condemned to hell. So this theology denied humans the notion of free will and that they had any role in their personal salvation. The Second Great Awakening was much more influenced by Arminianism, which the Methodists were. This theological view gave humans more free will, thus giving them more freedom and a more involved role in their conversion and salvation. The opposite side of this personal choice meant that humans could also lose their salvation by choosing to sin, what many evangelicals call backsliding. One of the most important figures from the Second Great Awakening was a Presbyterian minister named Charles Finney. Unlike most of the teachings made popular by Edwards from the First Great Awakening, Finney taught that revivals and conversions were not possible without human efforts, and as a result, he promoted and emphasized large mass efforts and what were considered new measures to increase the popularity and traction of his sermons. And these included um, mass advertising campaigns and even allowing women to testify in revival camps. Finney's influence was widely felt throughout the country during the t this time of the Second Great Awakening. Um, views of the end times shifted greatly from a pre-millennialist view, where many evangelicals believed that Christ would return before the end of the millennium, to a post-millennialist belief. The post-millennial view became the dominant view among evangelicals, and that paired nicely with the Arminian view of self-determination and even the positive view of human potential that came from the Enlightenment. Obviously, the one faltering expectation of post-millennialism was the belief that as society progressed, we would become progressively more Christian. But together, Finney's preaching and the popular post-millennialism would inspire numerous social reforms and movements in the North. Um, temperance, which just meant abstaining from alcohol consumption and discouraging of drinking alcohol. Um, prison and educational reform and abolitionism gained traction and supporters in large numbers. Finney himself repeatedly denounced slavery during his sermons and even went as far as refusing communion to slaveholders. Um, schools were built, including schools for the deaf. Asylums were erected to house the physically and mentally disabled. And evangelicals formed organizations that gave food, clothes, and jobs, uh, money and jobs to immigrants who were struggling to find their status. In fact, many of the major missionary societies and organizations that we still have today have origins that can be traced back to this period during the Second Great Awakening. Many historians refer to this network of social reforms and organizations as the benevolent empire. And in some historians' eyes, Many of these reforms and sweeping changes were done on behalf of evangelicals in an effort to impress the rest of the non-religious or non-evangelicals with their do-good efforts and ethics. Um, I think that's a pretty contrasting view to many Christians today who seem to imply that morality cannot exist without religion. I hear this a lot from many Christians who like to point to this time period or examples like the ones I cited above. Many organizations, hospitals, schools, and shelters were created and founded in religious efforts, but that doesn't prove that Christians are the most moral people or that you need religion or belief in God to do these things, because those institutions and organizations would have come around eventually, with or without religion. So by the end of the 19th century, many American Protestants belonged to evangelical denominations, 
with a small exception of high church Episcopalians and German Lutherans, who often found conversion hard due to the language barriers between English-speaking and German and Dutch-speaking communities. Evidence of the growing evangelical movement was seen in the development of the country's first megachurches. Although it was in London, the first evangelical megachurch named the Metropolitan Tabernacle was started by Charles Spurgeon and boasted a 6,000-seat auditorium. But by the early 20th century, another schism would be created between the more mainline evangelical denominations and a new group of evangelicals known as fundamentalists. So these disagreements were namely over the inerrancy and accuracy of biblical scripture. Fundamental evangelicals were those who not only clung to, but strongly defended their religious traditions and worried that modern scientific teachings were deviating others from the truth. They staunchly rejected any progressive modern or liberal theology or parties within the Protestant church, claiming that these teachings degraded their heritage and origins of evangelicalism by accommodating secular views. They especially criticized a prominent movement within the Protestant church known as the social gospel, which applied Christian ethics to moral problems like racial and gender inequality. Crime, alcoholism, poverty, poor schools, and uh, child labor, unclean neighborhoods and slums, lack of unions, and threats and dangers to war. So these were all the problems that the social gospel tried to address within the Protestant church that fundamentalists strongly rejected. So around 1920, two major factions of evangelicalism had emerged, um, the first being the fundamentalists, who evidently sought resistance against any contemporary developments, and the second group were the modernists, who were a group of people whose goal was to fuse Christianity with modern social and political reforms and developments. The fundamentalists fought back against the modernists by prohibiting the teachings of Darwinism and evolution in public schools. And this all came to a head during the infamous Scopes trial of 1925, which saw the modernists succeed over the fundamentalists, causing the latter group to retreat from the public and cultural eye for the time being until after the end of World War II. So the Scopes trial is a pretty interesting and important case in American history. Um, the formal name of the trial was the State of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes. And it saw the prosecution of a high school teacher, um, science teacher, John Scopes, for teaching evolution in a Tennessee high school, which had been recently been made illegal by a piece of legislation known as the Butler Act. The Butler Act would classify teaching evolution in public schools as a misdemeanor, and it would eventually become public that the trial started as a publicity stunt for the town of Dayton, Tennessee. After hearing that the ACLU sent out a press release stating that they would challenge the Butler Act, a local businessman met with the high school's superintendent and a lawyer, and the group approached Scopes to see if he would admit to teaching evolution so that he could be prosecuted. Scopes didn't actually even teach biology. He taught physics and math, and he, uh, he was reassured that he would use the materials to teach evolution somehow. To add to the stage drama of the case, Scopes would even go so far as to coach his students who were called to testify against him. In the end, Scopes was found guilty and fined a small amount equivalent to about $1,500 by today's standards. But the aftermath of the case led to a further divide in American Christianity, particularly with fundamental evangelicals and their more modern opponents. 
By 1927, 13 states had discussed some form of anti-evolution laws, and at least 40 different bills or resolutions would be introduced into state legislatures, with only two states actually succeeding in getting anti-evolution laws passed, Mississippi and Alabama. Any anti-evolution laws or attempts to pass such legislature during the 20s would fall by the wayside, fall to the wayside by the 1960s. And it didn't really go away. It just kind of morphed into a different movement known as the creation science movement. So even though fundamentalists considered the Scopes trial a victory, the death of their leader and prosecutor of the case, William Jennings Bryan, left a void in leadership within the movement, which is why they seemed to retreat the pol- from the political and cultural eye. But World War II changed the world in dozens of ways, and after the end of evangelicalism, um, experienced yet another revival with its die-hard adherence intent on expanding the movement and its vision across the country and the entire world. In a reaction and possible fear that evangelicalism was dying out and the world was becoming more modernized, Evangelicals urged the importance of engaging with the world in a constructive and and direct way. This led to further disagreement among many Christians, mainly evangelicals and fundamentalists, on their view of how one who is a Christian should interact with the world. Fundamentalists saw their predecessors as being too worried with being socially accepted, intellectually respected, and accommodating to, in their view, of a perverse and unsaved society. So a new term was coined in 1947 to describe this movement named neo-evangelicalism. I'm sorry if you hear my roommate's dog. She's probably here as a delivery guy outside our front door. Very sorry about that. Um, So in this development, they took their strict view of biblical inerrancy and sought to apply it to every area of life, sociological, political, and economic. But no one embodied this new fundamental evangelical movement more than Billy Graham. Billy Graham is probably one of the most prominent and influential religious leaders of the 20th century. From a very young age, he was constantly active in the evangelical church and denomination, holding several pastor and presidency positions. Since his ministry started in 1947, he conducted over 400 crusades in over 180 countries, where thousands of people would flock to the giant venues and stadiums he would rent out. The popularity of his crusades got the attention of NBC, who actually offered him a five-year, $1 million contract to appear on television, but he turned it down to attend to other commitments. I feel like a lot of people know the name Billy Graham, but no one really sits down to think about how much of an influence his ministry really molded what we now know as modern evangelical Christianity today. Separation of church and state has never really been a thing in this country, but Billy Graham definitely blurred the line even more with his use of religious language and how it found its way into American government and politics. He was particularly close with former presidents Eisenhower, Johnson, and Nixon, and it was Graham who influenced Eisenhower to hold the first national prayer breakfast in 1953. A couple of years later, Eisenhower would sign a bill placing the phrase, In God We Trust, on all American currency, thus changing the motto of the country from the former and more inclusive E Pluribus Unum to the religiously evocative In God We Trust. The developments made reflected not only the desire for evangelicals to unite Americans under one faith, but also reflected their fear and desire to keep a fast-growing, godless communism out of American politics and cultures. So 
as evangelicalism continued to divide and break off into different branches and organizations, international, in, wow, international missionary work expanded and evangelicals increased their global missionary workers from 12,000 in 1935 to 35,000 in 1980. Shout out to my former denomination I was raised in, which is the Assemblies of God denomination, for being one of the most active and growing denominations of evangelicalism during the 20th century. One linguistic change that occurred around the mid-20th century was that the words evangelical, fundamentalist, and conservative started to be used interchangeably. And there was a definite demarcation between a revival of the 18th and 19th century evangelicalism and the new emerging evangelicalism spearheaded and made popular by Billy Graham. Because evangelicals sought to evangelize the world and shared a concern with the spiritual well-being of society, it could explain how and why evangelicals today have infiltrated American politics and government, becoming more and more engaged with the political process every decade. And there is definitely an increase within the evangelical Christian community and how alarming it is that they've embraced the policies of our current president and his administration. Evangelical Christianity has been co-opted and hijacked by right-leaning political conservatives who want to create an oligarchy or theocracy in this country. Evangelicals are more concerned about morality and appearing like they're good and moral people more than they are concerned about the physical and material well-being of other marginalized groups. Many groups which have suffered as a result of conservative or Republican policies that are supported and funded by many religious and fundamental organizations and institutions in this country. I think it is an extremely harmful denomination of Christianity that preaches a fearful message of unreason and intolerance, and it attracts people who are more irrational and looking for someone, anyone, to lead them and tell them what to think and what to believe rather than encouraging the individual to think for themselves. In their attempt to evangelize the entire world and spread the gospel, they refuse to see how many lives they're putting at risk by continuing to hold large church gatherings during the highest number of COVID cases reported in this country thus far. They've created a monstrous second-tier messiah in our current president who aligns himself with several charismatic and Pentecostal officials and leaders for the sole purpose of political victory. And I think a lot of people, including myself, are realizing that this religious nationalism has the potential to be just as infectious and deadly as any other virus that ravages our planet. Thank you so much for listening to Anne's Archism. If you liked what you heard, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and consider signing up for a monthly donation on my Patreon at patreon.com slash anarchist. Like I said earlier, I've been on a bit of a hiatus for the last month and a half, but the universe has brought me back here. So if there are any other ideas or topics you would like me to discuss um, for further future episodes, let me know. I think that this is something that I truly am going to keep doing in the hopes that I can make this my at-home job, my way of earning income. Um, And so if you have any ideas or just would like some feedback or clarification on something that I talked about, you can find me on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram in that order at Annie Cabani for Twitter and TikTok and at Annie Skywalker for Instagram. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned something and I hope you have a great day.